0: This is episode 502 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, many Christians have many questions that often divide the church rather than bring unity. And you know the ones I'm talking about. Does the bread and the wine symbolize the body of Christ, or does it actually become the body of Christ? Or is the answer to that question somewhere in the middle? Then we have the issue about when and how often to partake of the Lord's Supper. Do we do it quarterly, or yearly, or every month, or every Sunday? The traditions run the gambit. But the most important question is the one we will answer today, and it has to do with significance. Think about it. If there is a judgment associated with taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, then maybe there is some meaning we are missing, something of vital importance that we are somehow taking for granted. And this is especially true as we strive for the higher Christian life while learning how to leave Laodicea behind. Hey, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2, which is the crux of the message here. There is this phrase that uh, Oswald Chamber uses all through uh, his utmost for his highest. I don't know about you, in my personal opinion, that's the most anointed book I've ever read. I've read it dozens and dozens of times over the years, a devotional, and every time I read it, something I've read every single year, Um, on a particular day, it always speaks to me. And he uses this phrase, broken bread and pour out wine. You will become broken bread and poured out wine. I was going to start off by showing you just in the month of February, uh, different ways that he uses it, because when he's talking about it, he's talking about the higher Christian life. And uh, February 2nd, I will send you an email on that. February 9th he uses it. February 25th, he uses it. And this is just for the month of February. In February 5th, he doesn't use it. But what he does is he talks about the higher Christian life. He talks about and asks the question, are you ready to be offered up to Christ in totality? We've been talking about this higher Christian life for over a year right now. You know It has to do with the total surrender of your life to him. It is the hardest thing in the world to embrace because we must decrease and he must increase. We must actually live out in the flesh what baptism symbolizes that we're buried dead with Christ and raised to a newness in him. And on February 5th, he kind of summarizes all that. So I will read this one to you. And it comes from Philippians 2.17. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering, Old Testament imagery here, on the sacrifice of the service of your faith, I am glad. I am glad if my life is poured out and sacrificed and given to you. From our Gentile perspective, a drink offering was a waste of good wine. You take a cup of wine, and we're gonna pour it out on the ground. How does that honor God? Well, it just shows a sacrifice from us. And so we look at it and go, I can't believe that that's even important, but Paul is using that imagery saying, if my life is spent on you, I rejoice and I'm glad with you all. Here's what Oswald Chambers says. Are you willing to sacrifice yourself for the work of another believer, to pour out your life sacrificially for the ministry and faith of others? He's talking about to the church. Or do you say, I am not willing to be poured out right now And I don't want God to tell me how to serve him. I want to choose the place of my own sacrifice. And I want to have certain people watching me and certain people saying, well done, I'm proud of you, and I want to get my reward now. It is one thing to follow God's way of service if you are regarded as a hero. Quite another thing if the road marked out for you by God requires becoming a doormat under other people's feet. God's purpose may be to teach you to say, as in Philippians 4.12, I know how to be abased. Are you ready to be sacrificed like that? Are you ready to be less than a mere drop in the bucket? To be so totally insignificant that no one remembers you even if they think of those you served? Are you willing to give and to be poured out until you are used up and exhausted, not seeking to be ministered to, but to minister. Saints, some saints cannot do menial work while maintaining a saintly attitude because they feel such service is beneath their dignity. Are you willing to be sacrificed this way? To you yield yourself to the Lord in such a way that whatever He calls you to do, it doesn't mean that your name gets posted all over Facebook, that He may call you to do something that nobody knows about but just you and Him. This February 5th, and again, this broken bread and poured out wine flows through all of this, but this February 5th entry kind of summarizes what it means. This is only the first part of two parts, actually, summarizes what it means to live a sacrificial Christian life, total surrender of who you are into the hands of Christ, or as the mantra was for the higher Christian life in the last century, to let go and let God be God in your life. Not you be God in your life and ask him to bless what you want to do, but let him be God in your life and direct you his way. It's broken bread and poured out wine. So we're getting ready to have the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to be candidly blunt with you and tell you that uh, I don't like the Lord's Supper. I don't. It's one of the lasting permanent sacraments in the church. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is great. Baptism has a whole lot of meaning to it. Baptism is something that's done one time, where it's an outward sign of what has taken place spiritually in the heart of a believer. He's baptized, he's buried with Christ, raised to a newness of the life. And you know we can all rejoice with that, and it makes perfect sense. The Lord's Supper is something that we're supposed to do as often as we do it to remember Christ's death okay, Um, it's not like I don't remember his death. It's not like you have to force us to remember his death. Our whole salvation is brought about by his death. And then there's the warnings that we talk about. If you partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, which means what, I, I lessen my idea of his death or I do it haphazardly or I don't really somehow spiritually connect with what's going on, that you bring judgment upon yourself. I'm being totally blunt here. I've been a pastor for 30 something years. That seems overkill to me. That seems a little heavy handed. Am I missing something here? I understand. I understand about Jesus at the Passover. I understand he takes the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he breaks it and, you know, so to do it in remembrance of him. He takes the wine. This wine is the cup of my blood and the new covenant that is offered for you. And I will not drink it again until I drink it with you in the kingdom of heaven. You know, drink you all of it. And so they do. And, and I, I understand that, but it seems like Every time we do the Lord's Supper, and it was this way when I was growing up, it was like somehow we had to make it meaningful because the true meaning of it is somehow lost. It's been lost on me for decades. I mean, I I understand what they teach you in seminary. I understand what it appears to say on Scripture on the surface. There's a deeper meaning we're going to talk about today, which is unbelievable. On the surface, I understand that, but... Okay, so it's time for the Lord's Supper. So, you know, we don't want to fall into this familiarity breeds contempt thing. So, let's try to make it a little different right now. Let's let's. The point of the Lord's Supper is this, or the point of the Lord's Supper is this, or you're committing something to this, or we'll pass it out, or we'll play music, or you'll come up individually. And did you remember that? We, I mean, we've done it for years and years, and some churches do it every single Sunday. And I, I can't imagine. It sounds really terrible. I can't imagine how old that gets. Um, I remember the first pastorate I had was a church in LaGrange, Georgia. And what happened is they would take the offering up and the guys would you know, get the offering and then they would stand in the back, this military style, four guys. And then the entire church would stand and they would sing the doxology. What a wonderful song, unbelievable song. And they would come down to the front and they would place the, the offering on the communion table and then they would go sit down. And when they sang the doxology, it was like this. Praise God for all blessings. Nobody cared. And I, I sat through it. I guess it was the third Sunday I was there. I said, Stop. This is what are we doing? You know, well, we always sing the doxology. Right. But we've sang it so much. With no meaning behind it, and it becomes so rote that we 've lost all value of it i mean it 's just a song, a mantra that we quote as we 're bringing the offerings down I mean, and that beautiful song had lost its meaning because we did it over and over again so how do you how do you capture what 's happening in the lord 's Supper how do, what is there there? what is in that that Christ wants us to know so much that there 's a judgment if we miss the point. There's a judgment if we take it in a unauthorized or an unworthy manner. So much so, as we've read these passages to you before, some of the people who did that in the Church of Corinth were sick. And of course if we read those passages prior to that, we see that they were drinking and they were getting drunk on the wine and they were, you know, showing favoritism on who ate first and who didn't. And okay. But is there something more to it than that? Especially as we're beginning to look deeper into this higher Christian life. So um, something happened to me um, last week when I was mowing the lawn. I love to mow because it's just me and this loud noise like my tinnitus on steroids. And uh, I can think, believe it or not. and, And I was thinking about the Lord's Supper and I was thinking about the higher Christian life and I was ruminating over broken bread and poured out wine. That Oswald Chambers always talks about. We become, and I'll send these, I'll send these um, entries to you this week. We become broken bread, like Christ became, my body broken, bread broken, and poured out wine as a sacrifice. How does that relate to the Lord's Supper? And, and all of a sudden it hit me. I know I've shared this with you before, but uh, when I first understood the sovereignty of God. When I first saw God in salvation and the doctrine of election, I'm sitting at a McDonald's in Pasco, Washington, and it just opened up my eyes, and I couldn't believe it. In every scripture that I turned to, it was there. It was there in the Old Testament. It was there in the New Testament. It's always been there, except these blinders came off, and now I saw it everywhere. It's almost like the Word of God is this onion, and you peel this layer off, and it reveals new truth that's always been there, and then you peel another one off, and another one off, and same thing happened with this higher Christian life. We all know what happened at the Last Supper, and we've always interpreted it on the surface, which it does mean that, that Jesus is sacrificing his body and his blood for us, that Jesus is dying, and his death on the cross Brought us our salvation. His blood that was shared was the propitiation for our sin. God saw it, He was satisfied, and we all understand that. And so every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're just supposed to remember that. Because that's pretty much in church that I've grown up in, and when I was in seminary and for years of pastoring, that's pretty much the kind of focal point on this. But what if there's something a little deeper. What if there's another aspect of that that, well, let me just share it with you. It's in Philippians chapter 2. Unbelievable passage showing what Christ had to do before he came to earth and broke his body and shed his blood for our sins. This is like a transaction. This is like a communication that's taking place between God the Father and God the Son. Here's what it says. We're just gonna begin in um, verse five and go all the way to verse number 11, but let me just show this to you. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, this is Christ now, being in the form of God, Wow, it's a strange phrase. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That's even a stranger phrase. But made himself of no reputation, taking on, here's that word again, form of a bondservant. That's an amazing word. And coming in the likeness of men. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Therefore, the good news, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord again, as always, to the glory of God the Father. Very familiar passages. But what do they actually mean? This is something Christ voluntarily did. This is not something God forced upon him. This is of his own free will. And watch what happens. Let this mind be in you. The word mind here is to think, to have the mindset, the same attitude, the same opinion. As Christ thought, we're supposed to think. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Or as it says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, is like having the mind of Christ. How Christ thought, how Christ lived, how Christ related to the Father, how Christ sacrificed, what he thought about himself, what he thought about others, what he thought about the Father. Whatever the mind of Christ is, we're to have that mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, what, being. Word means to be or to exist in a state or condition. He, being, in the form of God. And the key word here is the word form. It means shape or essence or a replica, something just like God. Literally, it means the expression of something that reflects or manifests fully the essence of what something is. It says that let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus now being in the form of God, being the essence of God, being a replica of God, being just like God of the nature and essence of who God is. We know Jesus is God, fully God, just like God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit when we talked about the Trinity. So this is a description of Christ here. And it gets better Christ did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That is a very strange English translation, is it not? Why the word robbery? I mean, that doesn't seem to make sense. Some, you find out why they translate it robbery. Some translations talk about clinging to God. They did not consider it wrong or to be clinging to God, to be equal with God. Here's what the word means. He did not consider, this is the word we looked at two weeks ago, to view, regard, to esteem, to count, to reckon. We talked about about you reckoning or considering yourself dead to sin. He did not consider it robbery, which literally means clinging to, grasping, taking something by force, to be equal with God. Equal, the word means alike in quantity, quality, dignity in every aspect. Or it could be translated this way. Jesus did not consider the act of being equal to God as an act of robbery, as an act of taking something that was not already his by nature. I'm not saying I'm equal with God and I'm robbing him from dignity and glory because I am equal to God. So therefore, it's not, I'm not taking something that doesn't belong to me, it's who I am. Because he was then, he is now, and he will forever be, if you remember a discussion about six months ago, God in the flesh. Okay. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal to God. So what did you do? What, what was the next move, Christ? Well, it's really simple. I wanted to show this verse to you here from Colossians 2.10 about him being equal with God. It says that in him, in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, fully God. And the good news for us is the fact that we are complete in him. And again, showing how great he is, who's is ahead of all principality and power. That's angelic and demonic realms. But Philippians 2.7 says this, but he made himself of no reputation. It's a voluntary move on Christ's part, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. His action, Jesus Christ, equal with God, co-equal with God, fully God as God the Father is, made himself of no reputation, made himself of no value, made himself to be empty and void, the greatest humbling of anyone imaginable. And Paul even describes to what degree he humbled himself. He took the form of a bondservant. The word form here is the exact same word we looked at before. It means the exact replica, the essence of that. Jesus took upon himself the form of a bondservant, which by the way, for me, is one of the most important words in the New Testament. It is doulos. And it means a voluntary slave. It means someone who is in a permanent relationship of servitude to another, whose will is totally consumed in the will of another. In other words, I have no freedom, no choice, no nothing. I live to serve my master. That's why Paul uses that phrase so many times in his epistles. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Newer translations translated a servant. It's not a servant. A servant is someone who serves when they want to and they have days off. A bondservant is a slave. Bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus made himself of no reputation, void. He came in the form, the exact replica and expression of a bondservant. And then he came in the likeness or the the resemblance of men. So I'm thinking about this. And I'm ruminating on it and I'm mowing and I'm asking a couple questions in this verse. Like, um, bondservant to who? You know, every time I've read this and you kind of just glance over, oh, just, you know, he's just, it just shows how much he humbled himself. What, a bondservant to someone on earth? I mean, who did he become a bondservant to? Note, first Jesus became a bondservant, and then he came in the likeness of men there was a willingness on his part to surrender his entire will into the will of another. And as a result of that, he then came in the likeness of men. So there's something going on within the Godhead that, um, let me just finish. Philippians 2.8. And being found in the appearance of men, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of a cross. So here we go. He was found or recognized in the appearance of men. And he, Christ's actions, humbled himself to bring low to a base, to render yourself to a low condition, and became obedient, which means to submit to someone to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus takes on the form of a bondservant to somebody, He comes then in the likeness of men. He then becomes obedient to somebody, and then the obedience is to the point of death, and then Paul wants us to know not just any death. He didn't die like my mother did at Myrtle Beach on vacation, even the death of a cross. He offered himself as a bond slave to his father. Had he said no? And Jesus said, "You know, um, send the Holy Spirit. I don't want to go. Or, you know, I don't have to go. I'm, I'm equal with you. Um, but you know, I just, I just I don't want this to take place. It wouldn't have. But I surrendered my life to the Father. I surrendered my my will totally infused with the Father's will. So His will is." Flowing through me, and therefore then I come to earth as part of that will, as a bond slave. I come to earth, humble myself to the, to the point of death because of my obedience to the Father, even a death of the cross. And we know what it was like in the um, we know what it was like in the in the garden when this happened. All of this points to this picture of surrender of Jesus like we've been talking about the higher Christian life and the higher Christian life comes when we surrender our will totally to the will of the father. And then as I'm reading this, I'm seeing that, yeah, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus, of course, the perfect sacrifice who is tested in all ways like we are tested, but nevertheless, he was also tested with his desire to surrender and yield and be obedient. Everything that he had into the hands of the father, even to the point of death and even death on the cross. Did he struggle with that? Yes, just like you and I struggle with that. Nevertheless, not my will, he says, but your will be done. And of course, we know what the blessings of um, surrender is, and it's the rest of this, this, these passages. Therefore, because of his obedience, because of becoming the likeness of man, because of him being a bondservant, obviously, to God the Father, God then highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name that that the name of that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and then he defines what every means those in heaven on the earth and those under the earth the human realm the demonic realm the angelic realm everything and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is lord to the glory of God the father okay why why it's because of his surrender is because of his, not just his humbling himself, he humbled himself because he had already become a bondservant, a bondslave to God the Father. And as God the Father says, I want you to humble yourself, I want you to come in the likeness of men. I want you to be tested just like everybody else is tested. I want you to suffer hot and cold and hunger and rejection and pain. And we've already talked about in the Psalms where it talks about what Jesus' life was probably like living in the family of Joseph and Mary and how he was a byword to the the community and how people made fun of him because of the way he was, how his brothers didn't even believe in him until after the resurrection. I want you to come and do that. Why? Why? because I'm gonna pour my wrath on you. I'm gonna pour the wrath of God on you for the sins of these people that are gonna crucify you for the sins of everyone. And so therefore, because you agreed, because you submitted, you became a bondservant, because you were obedient, even to the point of death in this total abject surrender of your will to my will, therefore, and then there's the blessing. There's the blessing. So I started thinking, you know, we had the Lord's Supper. He's up and he had the Passover Supper. So he's there and he's breaking the, you know, he's breaking the bread. And this is my body, which is broken for you. Okay. We know that meant his physical body. I got that. But is there something deeper there? And here's my blood, the new covenant, which is poured out for you. Drink it, and I will not drink again of this cup until I drink it anew with you in heaven. And they pass it around, and, and they drank it. And, and then they went into the garden where he was betrayed, and then they went to the cross where it was fulfilled. And I think in my own understanding of the Lord's Supper, what I have missed for decades is I've gone from the Passover meal to the cross. And I have missed the garden. Passover meal to the cross. I've kept it all physical. This is my body, broken for you. Oh, there it is on the cross. Agonizing, flogged, whipped, skin hanging off, how horrible that would be. Oh, here's my blood shed for you. I got that. Oh, there it is on the cross, the crown of thorns and, and all of that going on. And, and I've, I've seen those things as one, a prophecy. This is what's going to happen, and one, a fulfillment, which it is. But in the middle of that is where this higher Christian life comes in. Because Jesus submitted himself, and he was obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. And if you look at this final surrender to the Father, I mean, it's almost like he has to recommit himself to the Father. One more time, he knew why he came. He knew what the father's answer was, but he was so traumatized by what was gonna happen and the physical aspect and maybe even the spiritual, probably more so, where God was gonna pour his wrath out on him, the wrath of, for our sins on him. That's, that's why God blanked the world in darkness for three hours because what Christ was going through was not meant for human eyes. But in between that is what we struggle with that Christ struggled with and yet was victorious, and he had no help from anybody else. So what I did is like I do on Tuesday night, I took the accounts that we have of the garden, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and i pieced them all together so that we can figure out exactly, actually, John MacArthur did this. I'm just sharing it with you. What We can find out exactly what took place during that time. And we've combined all of these accounts so we can get to the entire picture, because Luke tells us some things Matthew doesn't, the entire picture of what this struggle was about. Remember, Jesus, first of all, said, I will be a bond slave to my Father in heaven. Whatever his will is my will. Okay. Then I'm going to be obedient to the point of death. But facing death and facing all that trial and tribulation, facing that suffering, he, like you and I, struggled. But yet he stayed true to his commitment and this surrendered life to the Father. Watch. This is combined account. Matthew starts out. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, which I pronounce wrong all the time. And John says that there was a garden there, which he and his disciples entered, Mark. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Mark tells us who they are, James and John, Matthew again, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Those are powerful words, sorrowful. And deeply about what? About the fact that he was soon to go see the Father, that it was the end of his ministry, the fact that uh, that he would now pay the price for everybody's sin, that his mission in the incarnation was now accomplished. No, he was sorrowful for what was about to happen. You know, for the first time, and who knows how forever he would be separated from his father. He would be treated. Not like a son, but he would be treated like an outcast by his father as his father poured the wrath and the anger of our sins on him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time Jesus never called his father, Father, is when he was on the cross. My God, my God, quoting Old Testament. Sorrowful and deeply distressed. I got a commitment to make. Am I gonna be obedient? Am I going to still be a bondservant or am I going to say, no, that's enough. I don't want to do it this way. Then he said to them, my soul, my center of my mind and will and volition, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Notice the adjectives here. Even to death. I haven't even gone to the cross and I'm so overwhelmed by what's about to happen. I feel like dying. Sit Stay here and watch with me and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So his inner circle stayed there. He went a little further, being withdrawn from them by the stone's throw, and he knelt down to the ground and fell on his face. Christ is prostrate with his face in the dirt and prayed, if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. It's more than I can bear. I'd, I'd rather, I don't want to do this, God. I know I made a commitment to you. I know, I know, I know You know the, the, that I've surrendered my life into you. I know in our vernacular, I made a commitment to the higher Christian life. I've surrendered my will to you. And I want to only do what you want me to do. But this situation is so difficult, I can't even sleep at night because I don't want to do what you want me to do. And whatever we're struggling with is nothing like he was struggling with. Nothing. And he said, Daddy, Abba, Father, look, you are sovereign. You are God. All things are possible for you. There's no higher authority to you. If it's your will, take this cup away from me. I I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We always focus on the latter part. There's my will, but your will be done like it's no big deal deeply sorrowful, broken on his face, so much so in agony and sorrow that an angel from heaven had to come and strengthen him. Really? Yes. This is what Jesus, the man, was going through, following through on his commitment as a bond slave to be obedient to death, even the death of the cross, and being in agony. Notice the words here he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow, from sorrow. They were no help. Jesus didn't rally a group around him and says, come on, you can do this, you know, come on, cheering you at the line, at at the finish line of the marathon or something. He was on his own. Then he said to Peter, What? And called him Simon, his carnal name. Are you sleeping? Could you not watch with me one hour? Can you imagine the shame you must have had? Why do you sleep? Rise, watch and pray, lest you enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed and spoke the same words, saying, Now, if you'll notice, it began with. Um, please take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, if you don't, uh, your will be done. Now he's almost come to the realization this cup's not gonna be taken away. And he begins to grow more in his commitment and his faith. Oh, Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, I'll do it. Your will be done because I'm a bondservant. I'm gonna be obedient even to the point of death. And when he returned, he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. Behold, the hour's at hand. The son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, if this was a movie, you've got Jesus flat on his face agony and prayer and just just beside himself to the point that an angel has to come I I can't even picture that in my mind. And what, kneel next to him and put his hand on his shoulder like like we do when someone's just weeping? And he raises up his head, and there's just drops of blood pouring on his head, and the capillaries breaking because of this intense agony, deep distress, excruciating mental torment that he's going through to keep a commitment he made to God. I will be a bond slave to you. Therefore, I want you to go to earth. I want you to humble yourself. And because you did and was obedient even to the point of death on the cross, therefore the blessing. When he comes back to his disciples, this is a confident Christ. This is a Christ who's been through the fire. Comes up and says, hey, still sleeping, guys? Can't believe it. All right, let's go. Betrayer's coming. Work's going to go. I've already recommitted myself. I know exactly what I'm going to do. So Lord, why do you want us to take the Lord's Supper as much as you do? He doesn't say that we take it weekly or monthly or quarterly or yearly or daily. He says as often as you take the Lord's Supper. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to remember the death of Christ. Remember the death. And what I have done, and again, it's not wrong. It's how it lays out. What I have done is I've jumped from the actual bread and wine, and the Passover in the upper room, all the way to the death of Christ. Thank you, God, for doing it, and I missed what I just read to you. And it may be, in addition to just talking about the death of Christ, it may be the fact that what we're to remember, in addition to that, is his commitment to the Lord, his surrender to the Lord. God, and I've surrendered my life to you, and. The things that you say is what, what I teach. And, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the words that I speak to you are not my own. They're, they're the Father's words. And I'm going to be going to you soon. And and I told my disciples they should rejoice that that's going to happen. And, and, I, and I know that. But now I'm going through this trial of life where it's going to cost me everything to stay committed to you. And I'm struggling. But nevertheless, I'm victorious. And because of that, God blessed him in ways that you won't find anywhere else in Scripture, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I'm talking every heaven, earth, under the earth, everything created will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because of his obedience, because of his sacrifice that was all based on a commitment as a bondservant. So we're striving for the higher Christian life. And if you're like me, what you're doing is you're having some successes and some failures. And the failures just suck the air out of your sails. I mean, they really do. I can't even get victory over this. I mean, oh, what a wretched man that I am. Maybe I ought to quit. Maybe this is too hard. Maybe, you know, it's, it's too much for me. And then we look at what Christ went through, agonizing, deeply distressed, in agony. So much so he's on his face, you know, breathing dirt as he's praying with it caked on his face probably with his tears and blood like mud. Angel has to come and, and comfort him. Because even in all of that, God didn't forget him. But Lord, if it's possible, if it's possible, please, please, don't let this happen. Don't let a government do this. Don't let my loved ones get sick. Don't let me lose my job or my house or anything. Don't don't make me don't don't make me live debased. I mean, if if I'm gonna follow you, exalt me as a hero, like we read from Oswald Chambers, but, but not, not as someone's doormat to be walked on. Nevertheless, nevertheless, you are sovereign. And whatever your will is, is what my will is. Second prayer, if I can't have it my way, God, let your will be done. You know what he prayed the third time? Doesn't show. just says the same thing. Doesn't even go into the words because the commitment is already there. And then he rose himself up, went back to the disciples, and faced the greatest trial of his life. Maybe, maybe, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, maybe we ought to think about that aspect of it too. That when we take of his sacrifice, we take of the juice that represents his blood and the bread that represents his body, that it's more than just physical. We think about that agonizing time in the garden because that's where we are right now. We're not physically dying for Christ. Day may come, but we're not doing that now. But we are agonizing in the garden to stay faithful to a commitment of a deeper Christian life to him. We've given him our life and then we snatched it back because if I give him my life, he may take me somewhere else. And Lord, I don't want to do that. I want to totally surrender myself to you. So when I partake of this and I drink of the... juice, and I partake of the bread. I remember your death and everything that led up to it. And I don't want to do it in an unworthy manner, which means, you know what? Everybody else is going to think I'm really committing myself to you, but I'm not. And so therefore I'm going to do it in a hypocritical manner that I really want it to be something deep and meaningful and powerful. Does that make sense? So Next week, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And what I would like to do is send you some things this week um, by email that will help you prepare for that, that will help you connect with God in a way maybe we never had before. We're not slighting his physical death on the cross that paid the penalty of our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for that. But we're also realizing that there was an extended time of agony where he was deciding, and this almost sounds blasphemy, if we're worth it. If the pain he was gonna suffer was worthy of keeping his commitment to God. And he did keep his commitment to God, and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and so therefore God exalted him highly. If we look at that in our vernacular, God let him experience the fullness of God because of his commitment first. And when, and when, this is the part that was so encouraging to me. And when I'm struggling, God, I want to do what's right. Things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. What a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of sin? That even in Christ's situation, he sent exactly what Jesus needed to give him the strength and courage to persevere. For Jesus, it was an angel. Came when he was shedding drops of blood for you and I, it may be something else. But he will always give you what you need to be able to allow you to fulfill your commitment to him. Amen. I am hoping tomorrow or next week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that we can begin preparing our hearts now. That God, I wanna I want to celebrate the death of your son but the obedience of your son, even to the point of death, as he became a bond slave to you, surrendering his will entirely into yours. That's what I want to do. That's what I have done. And I'm asking you, God, to recommit, to help me recommit my desire to let you be God in my life. Whatever it takes, come what may. And I pray that next week as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that um, will really connect with Him. Amen? Amen. Let me pray.